Welcome and thank you for listening to this podcast from Court to Ed Independent Medical Education. In this episode, the last of a three podcast series, you will hear from internationally renowned experts, Dr. Shahina Davood and Dr. Rena Callahan, as they discuss oral certs, a novel therapy for ER positive, HER2 negative, advanced or metastatic breast cancer. In this final episode, the experts discuss the next two patient case studies, each presenting unique and rare situations that shed light on the challenges confronting healthcare professionals and patients alike. This podcast is an initiative of Core2Ed and developed by Breast Cancer Connect, which is a group of international experts working in the field of breast cancer. The podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Menorini Stemline Oncology. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts and they do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the Breast Cancer Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Court2Ed website. Now, with that being said, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. And for those who are joining us for the first time, I am Dr. Shahina Daoud, a consultant medical oncologist and Professor of Oncology at MediClinic City Hospital in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. I'm truly excited to be here for the third and final episode of our podcast series focusing on oral surds in ER-positive, advanced, or metastatic breast cancer. Throughout the series, I've had the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Rena Callahan, an Associate Clinical Professor of Hematology-Oncology at the David Geffen School of Medicine, University of California, Los Angeles. Thank you, Dr. Daoud. I'm looking forward to starting our discussion today. But before that, let's take a moment to recap our journey so far. In the first episode, we thoroughly explored the efficacy and safety profile of oral SIRDs and their role in the treatment landscape. For our second episode, we delved into two patient case studies examining the complexities of treatment selection and sequencing decisions. And now, here we are in this concluding podcast where we will analyze the next two patient case studies, each presenting unique and rare situations that shed light on the challenges confronting healthcare professionals and patients alike. I will now pass it on to Dr. Daoud to present our first case. Thank you, Dr. Callahan. Our first patient is a 36-year-old premenopausal woman who was diagnosed with stage 3 ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer at the age of 28. During the diagnostic process, a mammogram and subsequent biopsies identified a 5-centimeter ER-positive HER2-negative breast lesion along with two positive axillary lymph nodes. Considering the high risk of recurrence, the patient was prescribed adjuvant treatment consisting of abemaciclib, anastrozole, and gozerolin to be administered for a period of five years. Two years after starting adjuvant endocrine therapy and abemaciclib, the patient presented with a new set of symptoms. She reported experiencing blurred vision, persistent headaches, and tenderness in the upper right abdomen. 
In response, a CT scan was conducted revealing a brain lesion measuring 0.4 centimeters and two liver lesions measuring 1.1 centimeter and 1.4 centimeter respectively. A biopsy was performed confirming the diagnosis of metastatic ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer. Interestingly, when a liquid biopsy and ctDNA testing were performed, no mutations were detected. This is a very interesting case and surely one that is not often discussed. My first question to you, Dr. Callahan, is how common are brain metastases with this biology of disease? And what considerations need to be made in order to select optimal treatment in this case? So, Dr. Daoud, this is a very interesting case, and I wouldn't say that it is the most common because this patient has ER-positive disease relatively early into her adjuvant treatment and has developed brain metastases. Brain metastases are not as common with ER-positive disease that is HER2-negative. But we certainly see it. Usually, we will see brain metastases later on in the course of their disease, you know, not so much when they recur on adjuvant therapy, but later on, you know, third line, fourth line. But I've certainly seen this before, and overall, 15% of patients with ER positive disease will develop brain metastases in the metastatic setting. So, in determining treatment for this patient, we need to consider the sites of disease. So she has both disease in the CNS as well as in the liver. If she had CNS-only disease, we could consider treating the CNS disease with local therapies such as surgery, radiation, stereotactic radiation, and perhaps not even switching her therapy but she has liver metastases. And these liver metastases, we believe, developed while she was on treatment. Presumably, she's stage three, so she was staged at her initial diagnosis and did not have metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis. So this developed at some point over the last few years. So we need to switch therapy. Then we need to consider what she has already been on. She recurred while she was on adjuvant endocrine therapy and, you know, right at that two-year time point. So we're wondering if she has endocrine-sensitive disease. You know, two years of endocrine therapy in the adjuvant setting is kind of our line of demarcation for whether we consider a disease endocrine-sensitive. And she basically recurred while on a bemocyclib. So that calls into question her resistance to CDK inhibitor. So for her, I would consider those factors and not retreat her with a CDK inhibitor if she recurred while she was on a CDK inhibitor, especially if it was a bemocyclib, and would also consider her mutational status. So she's had the liquid biopsy and we haven't found any mutation. We have not found an ESR1 mutation, have not found a PIK3CA mutation or another. And that's not so unusual. You know, the development of an ESR1 mutation is acquired over time and she's still in the adjuvant setting. So that's pretty uncommon. 
So for her, I'd consider other therapies that may treat disease both in the body and the brain and try to stick with a targeted therapy, perhaps. You could give her Everolimus with endocrine therapy or an oral chemotherapy such as capecitabine. Uh, TDXD could also be considered if she's her too low, but typically that's a little later on uh, in her disease. So now I'm wondering, Dr. Daoud, do you think that liquid biopsy was appropriate in this case? You know, given the lack of biomarker identification, would you recommend repeating this analysis or exploring other diagnostic methods? Thank you for the question, Dr. Callahan. This brings up several interesting points. So first, when performing a liquid biopsy, it is important to note that you are not always going to get the biomarkers that you are looking for. So the results may be true, and there in fact may not be an ESR1 mutation here. Post-progression on an aromatase inhibitor, the probability of acquiring an ESR1 mutation is approximately 40% and not 100%. Similarly, not everyone is going to have a PIK3CA mutation. Second, when performing a liquid biopsy, it is also important to note that tumor burden does impact the results of this diagnostic modality. The higher the tumor burden, the more likely you are going to capture enough ctDNA to profile and determine biomarkers of interest. In this particular case, the tumor burden is low, and as such, I am not 100% sure if we truly do not have any biomarkers of interest here. A biopsy was done on the liver lesion, and I would send that sample for analysis to make sure we are not missing any biomarkers that would help guide therapy. The cases of a patient who relapsed shortly post-completion of adjuvant abemaciclib while still on adjuvant endocrine therapy. She has essentially, I think, endocrine-resistant disease, despite the fact that it's at two years. I think that's, that's, a, that's a controversy that we're always going to debate about. Is this really endocrine-sensitive or endocrine-resistant? But determining biomarkers of interest here, such as ESR1 mutation, PIK3CA mutation, those other agnostic markers that patients may have, like HER2 mutations, or MSI, TMB, I think these are going to be very important to determine in this particular patient since she has relapsed so quickly after her two years of abemaciclib while still on endocrine therapy. Thank you for your answer, Dr. Daoud. I, and I definitely share your thoughts there. So what if resection of the brain metastasis was done? Would you send that for profiling? And I'm curious to know if an ESR1 mutation was present, you found it somehow, would it affect your management? Very interesting question and a very interesting scenario overall. Strictly speaking, if I had sent the liver lesion for profiling, I would not necessarily send the brain met lesion for profiling unless it was within the context of a clinical trial or for academic reasons where I would like to determine differential signatures between the two metastatic sites. I do not think that the information would add to the clinical data I would need to treat this patient. However, if there was not enough tissue from the initial liver biopsy that was done to send for profiling, I would send the resected brain lesion for profiling. Now, in the presence of an ESR1 mutation, 
with low burden of disease. She's not in visceral crisis, and she has been on adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitor for two years. I would certainly consider using an oral steroid like elicestrin in this particular case. So now I'm wondering, Dr. Callahan, how would you have approached this patient if she had recurrence of disease at the same sites with the same tumor burden, but it now occurs three years post-completion of five years of endocrine therapy and two years of abemaciclib. And I think this scenario is really important because this will come up in the future as we start to increasingly incorporate the use of adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitors. So really a futuristic question that us community oncologists are going to face. Yep, this is really an interesting question. And we don't have a lot of data in this setting because adjuvant CDK inhibitors were pretty recently approved in the past few years. And so this gets back to considering the length of time since she had received both the endocrine therapy, the aromatase inhibitor, as well as the CDK inhibitor abemacyclib. So this is three years after she could still have endocrine sensitive disease. She could still be sensitive to CDK inhibitors. So I would consider retreating her with aromatase inhibitor and first line CDK inhibitor as we would do when patients have recurred after this length of time who had never received adjuvant CDK inhibitor. It'll be interesting to see how much time she actually is able to be on that therapy and progression-free, but you can use the same agents because three years has elapsed. And then we have the tissue biopsy in this setting. We should get a liquid biopsy, send that for molecular profiling, look for the mutations that we have already discussed and then consider those when we are choosing mostly her second-line therapy and then go over patient-specific factors as well. What is she looking for? What kinds of toxicities does she find acceptable at this point? And in this way, we can come up with a treatment plan that makes sense to both us biologically and her because she has to live with uh, these toxicities and tolerability issues. So thanks for this discussion. Now let's move on to our next patient. Our next case is a 34-year-old premenopausal woman who was initially diagnosed with stage 2 ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer at the age of 31. Following her diagnosis, she underwent adjuvant treatment with tamoxifen for a period of five years. However, 28 months into the planned treatment of five years, a slight elevation in alkaline phosphatase prompted further investigation. A PET-CT scan revealed the presence of lytic bone lesions in the femur. Subsequent biopsy confirmed the diagnosis of ER-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer. To address the metastatic disease, the patient's treatment plan was modified and she was prescribed first-line therapy consisting of palbocyclic, exemestane, and goserelin. 
Unfortunately, after only five months of treatment, she displayed signs of treatment resistance and a follow-up PET-CT scan indicated development of diffuse osseous metastatic disease. As we go through these cases, it really does show how each patient is unique, requiring tailored treatment strategies and sequencing decisions. On that note, Dr. Dowd, allow me to ask you the first question. Do you think there is a role for liquid biopsy in the setting of bone-only disease? Thank you for the question, Dr. Callahan. You very importantly pointed out that each patient's case is unique and a personalized treatment strategy has to be developed for each and every one of them. In this particular case, there is diffuse osseous metastatic disease, and as such, the tumor burden is high, and I would be very comfortable requesting a liquid biopsy here. I have several patients where I have been able to determine biomarkers of interest with bone-only disease. However, like I said, burden of disease does matter as it increases the probability of capturing ctDNA for profiling. Now, if the patient had an ESR1 mutation, how would you proceed, Dr. Callahan? Would you perhaps consider elicestrant in this case? Dr. Dewitt, I would definitely consider elicestrant in this case because she has an ESR1 mutation. She has diffuse osseous metastatic disease, but she is not in visceral crisis. So it would be appropriate uh, to treat with elicestrant. Some things, however, we have to consider in terms of our expectations of duration of therapy on elicestrant would be the fact that she developed disease progression after only five months of a CDK inhibitor, palbocyclib. And the analysis has been done with elicestrant and in the EMERALD trial that duration on CDK inhibitor therapy predicts for a greater benefit on progression-free survival of elicestrant. Patients that were on CDK inhibitor for a year had between eight and nine months of progression-free survival on elicestrant. This patient it was closer to six months. So while it is certainly an appropriate treatment option, she may not have that length of progression-free survival. I completely agree with you. I think that when we're treating our patients, we really need to set those expectations both for ourselves and for the patient. And you're completely right. Five months on palbociclib, she progressed uh, quite rapidly and had diffuse osseous metastatic disease. And this is why it's important to profile our patients so that we can get the most appropriate therapy to our patients. So thank you for that insight. But let me ask you another interesting question that may come up. So we we profile all our patients in terms of doing either liquid biopsies or tissue profiling. What if when you're doing these next generation sequencing diagnostic studies, you pick up more than one biomarker of interest. So for example, in this particular patient, what if she had a PIG3CA mutation and an ESR1 mutation, and she is post-progression on a CDK4-6 inhibitor? What would be your ideal treatment strategy in terms of sequencing? And if you decided to give elicestrant in that post-progression on the CDK4-6 inhibitor, would you be comfortable 
giving targeted therapy like alpalizumab post-progression on alicestrant? Great question. You know, these co-mutations, I'll just focus on PIK3CA and ESR1 because that is relevant, very relevant in our treatment decision-making, especially in the second, third line setting. So that co-mutation, it's not uncommon and occurs in 10 to 15% of these tumors. And elicestrin has shown activity in these double mutants. So then I would consider what are the toxicities of therapy? What is the tolerability? And certainly elicestrin is a very tolerable therapy when you're comparing it with PIK3CA targeted agents such as alpelisib. It is much, much more tolerable and uh, doesn't require that same level of monitoring. So I would choose elicestrin here as my first choice over PIK3CA targeted agent in this second line setting. And then after disease progression while on elicestrin, an oral SIRD, then I would consider using alpelisib. Part of it, it depends, again, you know, what is the patient looking for in terms of tolerability? What is her disease doing? Is she in visceral crisis at that point? All of those same disease-specific and patient-specific factors come into play again. Thank you, Dr. Callahan. Again, very interesting insights that maybe I can, I can make it even more interesting we know that capifazertib is going to be on the horizon very soon. So how would you put that into the whole uh, sequencing strategy? Patient has an ESR1 mutation and a PIK3CA mutation. Right. That is the, the questions are, are getting harder and harder. And it's, uh, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches, right? We're, we're very fortunate uh, to be able to have so many therapies and so many on the horizon for our patients. You know, capivacertib, uh, the data that we've seen so far, I think, is impressive, but it does have toxicities, ocular toxicities, other things that we have to monitor. And so still in this setting, elicestrant is very tolerable, and it's also very effective in the post-CDK inhibitor setting. In the Emerald trial, 100% of patients had prior CDK inhibitor therapy. About 70% had visceral metastases, and elicestrin performed very, very well and was very tolerable. So I think I would still give elicestrin in the second line, saving uh, CAPI for later line therapy. Thank you, Dr. Callahan. So. Thank you, Dr. Dawood, for sharing your knowledge and expertise throughout this episode. It's been an absolute pleasure discussing these cases with you. As we wrap up this podcast, we not only conclude today's episode, but also reach the end of our entire series. Thank you so much, Dr. Callahan, for sharing your valuable insights on this topic. Your input has truly made this conversation engaging and without a doubt, will provide our listeners with invaluable insights. Today, we really delved into the complexities of treatment selection and sequencing in each of the unique and rare situations the two patient cases presented. For today's clinical takeaways, we suggest that when deciding whether to adjust the current treatment dosage or switch therapies, 
it is essential to consider various factors, including disease progression, tumor burden, treatment-related toxicities, patient preferences, and of course, quality of life. Additionally, it is recommended to maximize endocrine therapy options with and without targeted therapy in ER-positive, HER2-negative, advanced, or metastatic breast cancer. It should also be noted that current Phase three data do not confirm the benefits of CDK4-6 inhibitor beyond progression of disease after prior CDK treatment, and that further investigation is necessary to determine the optimal approach. And finally, duration of progression-free survival on CDK4-6 inhibitor therapy can help guide sequencing decisions. For oral SIRS, specifically elicestrant, patients who received prior CDK4-6 inhibitor treatment for longer duration derived the greatest benefit. We hope our audience finds this information helpful in their clinical practice, and thank you all for joining us throughout this series. I have loved every single minute of it. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. We hope you found this podcast informative and enjoyable. If you like this episode, you should look on the Court to Add Medical Education channel for more. In particular, you can find the first podcast of the series where Dr. Callahan and Dr. Davood discussed oral certs efficacy, safety, and place in the treatment landscape. Also, check out the second episode where the experts discussed two other patient case studies with ER-positive, HER2-negative advanced or metastatic breast cancer and delved into the intricacies of treatment selection and sequencing to maximize outcome. Don't forget to rate this episode on the Core2Ed website and share our podcasts on social media or maybe with your colleagues. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit core2ed.com for more information.